This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, January 19th, 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill. She's Rebecca Shinsky coming to you from bookriot.com. Um, I, I got to warn you, Rebecca, I've been um, I've been leaving my coat out. My shoes are all over the place. Frontless foyer needs some attention. So we're going to spend a lot of time on frontless foyer. <laughs> the, the, there's umbrellas. There's some stuff that needs to go to Goodwill. Um, some Amazon returns. I think that something going back to Zappos. Um, the, the foyer needs attention. It's been neglected too I long here in the new year. I'm delighted to hear that. I have some front list foyer as well. And I was looking at my list and sort of waffling, like some of my front list that I've read is not out yet. And I couldn't decide if yeah. I should talk about it now or wait until it comes out. But maybe we'll just fully occupy front list foyer today. I'm excited. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question maybe for the listeners. Do they care if the books aren't out yet? Because if I were you... I'd want to talk about it while the pizza was still re- relatively yeah, well, it's fresh. fresh. So depending on how long that takes, um, might be might be kind of interesting. So, okay, we're going to get it to here in just a second. You, you want to tell people about a TBR real quick before we do our first our first sponsor yes, break? We'll do an know, internal sponsor break, then an, an external sponsor break. Finding books to give as gifts for people who love books is much harder than it sounds like it would be. <laughs> And one of the things that you can do, especially with Valentine's Day coming up, if you've got a bookish boo, is gift them instead the gift of a professional person to pick out their books for them with our TBR service. TBR, of course, being tailored book recommendations. It's like Stitch Fix for books. You don't need to angst over what to get them. You just gift them the gift of TBR by going to mytbr.co slash gift. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. You can select to either have your bookish boo receive recommendations by email or hardcover books that they get in the mail. They'll fill out a profile that tells our bibliologist what they like to read, what they don't like to read, recent favorites, even stuff like the pop culture that they're into. So we kind of get their vibe. There's a place to identify any deal breakers or content that they'd like to be warned about. And then our bibliologist who are real people, there are no algorithms involved, are assigned to customers based on their areas of interest and expertise. And they look at all that stuff. They can even look at your booze Goodreads account and select books that they think will hit the mark. Um, So a cool customized experience if you're looking for a Valentine's Day gift. I know we're like just into the start of the year, but Valentine's Day is less than a month away. So uh, check out the link in the show notes. I'm going to remember how to talk by going to (laughs) mytbr.co slash gift to pick that up today. And you can set it to be delivered to your boo uh, by, you know, they'll get an email that notifies them anytime. So if you don't want them to know until Valentine's Day, that's fine. If you want it to go ASAP, that's fine. If you've just got to give a gift to someone bookish and you don't care about Valentine's Day, you can do that whenever also. So mytbr.co slash gift do that. And again, the link is in the show notes. Uh, yeah, let's do our, our, do our first uh, real sponsor break. And then I got some follow-up and we'll get into the, the news of the week and see about getting the, uh, the muddy galoshes out of the front list for you. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by William Morrow. I'll be dead in three months. Come tell my story. Imagine someone told you that. That's what Sebastian Trapp, a reclusive mystery novelist, told to his longtime correspondent Nikki Hunter, an expert in detective fiction. So with only a few months left to live, Trapp invites Nikki to his spectacular San Francisco mansion to help draft his life story, living alongside his beautiful second wife, Diana, his wayward nephew, Freddie, and his protective daughter, Madeline. But soon, Nikki finds herself caught in an irresistible case of real-life detective fever. Make sure to pick up End of Story by New York Times bestselling author A.J. Finn for a book that gives Knives Out, that gives White Lotus. You'll like this if you like books by Lucy Foley, Nita Prose, and others. So make sure to pick it up, check it out. And thanks again to William Morrow for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by National Geographic Books. The Cave is the incredible memoir of Imani Balur, a young doctor and activist who ran an underground hospital in Damascus, humanizing the enduring crisis in Syria. The only woman to have ever run a wartime hospital in Syria, she saved many from the atrocities of war while having to face the patriarchal conservatism around her. 
Amani Balor is a game changer. Listen, she will be remembered as one of history's greatest. She's a passionately committed humanitarian, and she is determined to help others escape the horrors that she survived. Make sure to pick up the memoir, The Cave by Amani Balor and Rania Abuzaid, for a memoir that expands on the 2019 Oscar-nominated film by the same name, which documents her experience running the hospital, shielding children from horrific sarin attack, losing colleagues, trying to employ more women in the hospital, and eventually leaving and becoming a refugee. So make sure to read about this amazing woman. And thanks again to National Geographic Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye. Bone familiar Rosie spends most of her days in the Bone Forest, hiding her powers to avoid conscription by the Witch King's army. But when she saves the life of Princess Shaw, she's offered the chance to attend the prestigious school Witch Hall. And at Witch Hall, Rosie finds herself embroiled in political games she doesn't understand. Shaw wants Rosie as a partner to help lead the coming war. Meanwhile, all Rosie wants is to stay out of trouble. But she can't really deny her attraction to Shaw. So the question is, will Rosie give in to her destiny or will the Bone Forest call her home once and for all? Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye is for all the magic school lovers. This immersive magic school is full of witches and familiars. It's also a queer normative fantasy world with a sapphic slow burn romance like we love. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye for sponsoring this episode. Uh, some feedback. First one, asked for Scorched Earth memoir suggestions mm. from listeners. Um, I had suggested you know, maybe a Taylor Swift sort of a situation, Tom Cruise or someone in, you know, a celebrity orbit there. Um, no affirmative consent, so I won't say the name. Sorry if you wanted me to or whatever. But uh, one, one suggested, and this is where my age starts to show because I guess I understand that One Direction was a huge thing, but then a couple people oh. actually mentioned that there was a lot of drama. Their names I don't know here. I assume these are band members. They sound like they could be prescription medications. I don't know what the names of these people are, but it sounds like there would be a desire for a uh, triage. I guess if Harry Styles mm-hmm. did it, that would probably be the equivalent of like a Taylor Swift kind of seismic that's event true. in the world of mm-hmm. celebrity tell-alls. So I thought that that was pretty interesting. I think that's the best one that I saw. I, I don't think yeah, anybody else really came up with that. People like, what about someone from inside the church or inside? Mm. I don't know. I think we've kind of gotten that. And no one, frankly, in the church has the celebrity. I guess if the Pope wrote a tell-all, I I don't even know what that would be. It's just a weird idea. Um, Yeah, that's fascinating. Somebody on the Patreon mentioned that if Jen Aniston wanted to just like really tell all the stories there would be an audience for that. And I thought that was the next best pick that I've heard. I think Taylor Swift, Harry Styles for like pop culture in the present. But I think a Jennifer Aniston tell-all memoir like 10 years ago (laughs) would have been absolutely bananas. But the suggestion I think may win. And it's not unlike, we've talked about someone in this orbit earlier during the the waves of Trump, we suggested Melania. Someone's like, what about Barron? An innocent mm. bystander, kind of the hairy Duke of Sussex of, of America <laughs> during True. the Trump years, it feels uh-huh. to me. You know, if he grows up and marries a celebrity or has his own kind of career, he the, the, the thing that's different about, the, about Prince Harry is he is not just royalty, but has also courted a kind of public awareness by marriage and... I think by sensibility, and I don't how I don't even care how much is is her or him or both of them, but they they they're voluntarily doing eight part Netflix series and right. doing podcasts like they're out there doing that. So that's the that's the thing that's hard to reconnoiter. All those people that we mentioned so far are kind of like keep it on the down low, right? Harry was we were ready for Harry because we he was mm-hmm. like telling us he was going to put it to put it on Front Street eventually. Like this was not a surprise, and it's so. It's just there's just so much of it. That, that's the piece that's difficult to understand. But Baron Trump, I thought there's a world in which you know he becomes, I don't know, a talk show host or a Joe Rogan type oh. person, or maybe some <laughs> other kind of. Maybe he goes the other way and he becomes. I, I don't. I don't even know who I can think of. At this point, I'd be excited to see Baron Trump become, but gets a profile of his own, takes his mm-hmm. celebrity and connections out for a ride, develops his own platform, and then decides at some point, you know what. 
it's time to do. I mean, kind of like Patty Davis did with uh, her dad, Ronald Reagan. It wouldn't be dissimilar, except I think the juice, uh, just juicier fruit, all of, uh, to squeeze um, over there. So thought those are interesting. Um, one other thing, I also asked for you and I were, you know, scratching our heads about VR goggles. Um, mm. Had someone write in to mm-hmm. say. ADHD is an interesting use case. Oh, um, people okay. that have physical environment distractions, and I and I wrote back and said, I you know this this is exactly the kind of thing that was a known unknown to me to use the Rumsfeldian mm-hmm. terms. Like I could imagine there are things out there about accessibility that I don't have the experience with, um, and how much a physical environment of like basically sh- not not just that it's on your face so much as that that being on your face shuts out can shut out the outside world. Yeah, it's really which is a cool point. So I don't know if mm-hmm. people have done that. Um, we did get someone sending an image of a kind of like over the shoulder, like Kindle mount. It's almost like, um, I mean, I have my podcast mic on the stand, you know, everyone's sales yeah. works and they're articulating and they can extend. But what if you attach that to your headboard on your bed and it went over your head and instead of holding a podcast mic, it held a Kindle. So, oh, I have seen these for iPads that yeah, are, that maybe idea. don't. Yeah, that they don't, the one I've seen doesn't attach to like your headboard, but sort of is on a stand that you could roll around mm-hmm. the house. Kind of like uh, the best analogy I have really is like the stands that IVs are on in the hospital, but has <laughs> yes. a little like platform yes. you hook your iPad to and then can make the screen face you. So you could just, right, you would still have to tap it to turn the page or do whatever, but you wouldn't have to be holding it the whole time. It's really interesting. Yeah, an iPad can get pretty heavy in your hand, even a, even the smaller ones, um, if you don't have it on your lap. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a real, that's a real, you're spending some time in that location if you're going to get out the drill. Anytime you get out the <laughs> drill, you're making a commitment to your to your future self. Um, I mean, that kind of stuff right there. is super helpful if you've had like if you've had surgery or you've broken a bone yeah. in a hand or something like that, or there is some mm-hmm. kind of mobility issue where holding something wouldn't just be uncomfortable, but might be impossible. A tool like that could be really interesting. So that was cool. And exactly the kind of thing I hope for. So thank yeah. you for thank you know, you, who listeners you who wrote those things in. Okay. Um, we'll do front list for you at the end. Let's do news. You want to do the update about the labor dispute? You know, we're going to keep tabs on this, kind of keep it in the sure. ether, uh, at the least at the top of the show, both because they deserve it and it continues to be interesting. Yeah, there's a great piece from Jim Milliot in uh, Publishers Weekly this week, of course, links in the show notes if you want to check out all of it. Taking kind of a broader look at the title is Who Wins in the HarperCollins Labor Dispute, yeah. the HarperCollins Union Labor Dispute, and taking a broader look at perceptions of the labor dispute, hopes about it, fears about it from outside the HarperCollins Union, Mm -hmm. sort of from the industry at large. And there's a lot of interesting stuff to chew on there. One piece that I hadn't considered is smaller and independent publishers looking at this. Like, you know, we thought, okay, HarperCollins, they've got to be, they're thinking about it, but maybe, you know, PRH is thinking about what their employees will demand if HarperCollins is successful, or maybe Simon & Schuster, some of the big ones. One of the pieces that just had not occurred to me yet that Milliot covers here is that there are smaller independent publishers, many of them outside of New York City, that are concerned about how public the strike is. Um, Because as Milliot says here, with the wage demands made public, They are concerned that it's raising unrealistic financial expectations because smaller publishing operations can't afford to match the wages Mm. at the big five publishing companies. And I had a really complex response (laughs) to that sentence um, that I thought was just worth talking about here and getting your perspective on and hearing what Mm. our listeners uh, think about it, especially folks in the industry, because This seems to me, first, that the demands that the folks from HarperCollins are making, as we've said, are more than reasonable. And that uh, base wage expectation that they've asked for is a a floor of $50,000, which I think is not enough of a floor for a New York City-based publisher. That's It is hard to live on $50,000 a year in New York City. If you're outside of New York City, I think in a just situation, you're not trying to match the wages that New York City publishers are giving, but the equivalent for the cost of living in your city. And I'm I'm curious about how independent publishers would respond to that if it was like, well, New York, they're asking for 50K, but where you are in, I'm just going to make up, you know, like Ames, Iowa. Um, 
you would only have to pay 38000 a year. Is that reasonable or can you not do it? And that's a part of the problem in the industry writ large. Like if some of the response is we don't want this union to be so public with their demands because we're worried if they're successful, then we're also going to have to pay people fairly or maybe like not even quite fairly, just more fairly than we currently right. are. That reflects back problems with how independent publishers are set up. We've talked about pro- the problems with how independent bookstores are set up. Often those folks are significantly underpaid. There's a lot of vocational awe there and that was it was just a really complex piece because like yes independent publishing is wonderful and contributes interesting books to the publishing landscape but if you can't do that in a way that is humane to the people who work in those places we need to take a second look at this and and the source of the problem is not the union asking for better treatment so there's a lot more in this piece from Milliot, but that was the one that really stood out to me as like this could we could do some more conversation about this i think in, in the industry writ large well, I think we've talked about this before where in vocational awe is, I think, a term that we learned from our co-colleague Kelly from, Jensen or maybe yes, around you know, something mm-hmm. something in this where basically, and this is true in many fields, it's not just publishing, is people will take a salary discount to be a part of some of the stuff like this, um, whether it's because they think it's a leg up um, or they just would rather be in that industry versus an industry that pays them more because of lifestyle or morality or flexible work or work product or whatever. And how much books and reading are subsidized by vocational all Mm -hmm. is kind of the question you're asking. Yes. And is it voluntary vocational all? Is it involuntary? Um, And how does the ecosystem change if we start having a conversation about I don't know, some minimum standard, you know, you could use a living wage is not the worst one to use. How, no, how many people of their full-time employees could say the, the most junior person here who's full-time gets a living wage? It feels to me if you can't do that, then maybe you don't have a business. I agree. I mean, again, I don't know anything about all these companies and that's easy for me to say because I'm not in these companies and there's nothing easier to do than spend other people's money. <laughs> And that's true, but I think that's a real wake-up call for any kind of person trying to understand how to think about this is HarperCollins here is what kind of what you're saying. This is not the lone outlier on the downside problem child that once right. we get this union situation squared away, we're good. We're all, everything's <laughs> fine here. We can all move out of business and buy our $36 hardcover. <clears throat> I may have paid something like that recently for a hardcover and it did a bit of a double take. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And where does the money go? Can it be different? It, would it be better for an independent publisher to not exist rather than to underpay its most junior people? Those are questions I have a hard time answering because it's not mm-hmm. my business and um, I, I don't know. But it, I think it's a really interesting one to look at. If HarperCollins, like this is also the only unionized of the big five. Mm-hmm. So why aren't the other ones unionized? I, this gets beyond our scope, right? This gets into labor and employment practices, and we just don't know that enough about this. And each individual thing is different. But I think that's interesting to see that the other smaller publishers are like, whoa, because we reported – not reported, but we had a report from a listener saying, I'm at HarperCollins. I didn't know those things existed. It did not occur to me to think about what about the other publishers looking at Right. This? Yeah, um, it didn't occur to me to think time. about that at all. I think – I had thought about what the other big five might be thinking, especially New York-based publishers who do also meaningfully underpay people. And so much of the industry, just from how the books are produced and publishers, how they are sold, and then distribution through independent bookstores often, is built on folks being willing or kind of coerced into in some ways by this idea of vocational awe Mm -hmm. or contributing to something so important. And I'm glad to see that idea that, that, that people are chipping away at that idea that your humanity, your healthcare, your ability to like pay your bills and put food on the table and not be, you know, burning the candle at both ends and really stressed out all the time just so you can work in books. You know, like there are many other ways to contribute to the world. And I'm glad to see people starting to ask those questions. I think this is prompting a lot of fascinating conversation. And the more of it that happens in public, the better. 
Um, I'd like to see who are the folks working at these small independent publishers? How do they do that math for themselves? Um, Mm. Independent bookstores have been unionizing over the last couple of years and having that same kind of conversation. This is a real shift. And there is a lot of money in publishers. So I would love to see like the thing I would love that we will never get. But the dream, (laughs) if the court of rightness gets to like convene and send out subpoenas, is that somebody at HarperCollins does an alternate P&L of like, here's all the money that Mm. comes in in a given year. Here's how we currently spend it across salaries at different levels of the company, across advances to authors, expenses on things. How could we rearrange it to be more fair to the people at the lower levels of the company who are doing a lot of the toil, you know, like overpaid CEOs is not news. Folks know about that, but what would it look like to rearrange the budget? Would it be possible to rearrange the budgets for some of these companies in a way that would you know, even the playing field and provide fair wages without having to like completely tear the company down and start over? It would require a lot of shifting and changing expectations, yeah. I'm sure that people, especially the people who are making a lot of money right now, would not enjoy um, what that looks like. But I would love to see that what that experiment that, you know, that thought experiment would look like. It would be fascinating. Yeah, it's a good piece. Um, Link to it in the show notes. So continue as we find stuff Mm -hmm. that we find thought provoking to put it there. Um, You learned about an adaptation, but you didn't say what it was. Are you trying to surprise me? Am I trying to guess here? What's going on? You don't have to guess. I don't know if you know about this one. I Mm. just was making notes. Um, I was listening to, I think I was listening to The Watch on The Ringer with Chris Ryan and um, Andy Greenwald, and they were talking about some most anticipated shows, not just adaptations, but most anticipated shows for the year. And they mentioned that HBO has an adaptation of The Sympathizer coming out sometime this year. There's not a release date yet. In which Robert Downey Jr. is playing multiple characters. So The Sympathizer won the Pulitzer in 2016. It's about a double agent in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Um, What I could find online, there's a lot of um, there are a lot of Vietnamese actors cast in it. And then there are these antagonists and Robert Downey Jr. will be playing a bunch of those antagonists that appear in, in different ways. It's like his big return to serious acting post Iron Man. And his, I think he and his wife are producing it. The Sympathizer is a super interesting book. And I was like, oh, that's going to be fun to watch. And I think it kind of shot up to near the top of my most anticipated adaptations for the year. This is what I like. I, I did hear about this. This is what is a high variance situation because Robert Downey Jr. can be very good. He can also be one of the great hams of all time. And there's a version of Robert Downey Jr. playing four people or whatever that is a complete mess. His post-Iron Man sojourns have not been great. We had The Judge, which was quite poor, and mm. The Abomination that was Doolittle. And both of them <laughs> suggest to me that Robert Downey Jr. alone cannot make a movie good. And yeah. kind of like Tom Hanks putting on a, a fat suit or an accent or a wig, I'm very worried about this, Rebecca. I'm very, very worried. Tom I Hanks needs to be some version of Tom Hanks. And not playing Geppetto or the Colonel and Elvis. That's not what we want from Tom Hanks. <laughs> or I would want it if it was good. I cannot have the Lady Killers Tom Hanks. I, I can't do it, Rebecca. And I'm very worried I about this. You. I'm very, very I concerned. agree that the level of variance is high. I don't know what my confidence index is on it, except yeah. I have a lot of confidence in HBO's development team. <laughs> That and would they give, put things, so if we were doing a confidence index, the HBO, that our producers, our suits involved, that's yes. very good because HBO tends not to make embarrassing things. Right. And a lot to. of things, they don't. And they, they have a really like serious, long, detailed development process. A lot of shows, possible shows, go into that incubator and very few of them come out. And the ones that we see represent the very few. That like they've HBO has had some flops. They've made some missteps like everybody, especially in the streaming. Yeah. era with the in in the rush in the last couple of years to just like have as much content as possible but i have a lot of faith in the approach that hbo takes and sort of the like the fidelity to a piece of literary work like the sympathizer that i, I think those producers and that hbo incubator c- would craft like I don't know what Robert Downey Jr. would do with the sympathizer on his own in an unregulated environment. I think he has enough gravitas to not screw it up too badly, but I really have a lot of faith in the combination of HBO working with yeah. him and this other cast 
I, I think there's you know some good possibility there. I will be very eager to watch that and see how it goes. But you're right. Like if it's it will either be great or it will be bad. Like there won't be an in between. <laughs> there's not a world yeah, where I, I, that's I guess there mediocre. probably could be an in between. But I think there is a five percent chance you're like, oh no, why is Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> mugging in this very totally. interesting, great literary novel about frankly not white people? Robert Downey right, Jr. Right. should not be the star of a show called The Sympathizer. Like. So we'll see. Maybe this is the way this gets made. Is Robert Downey Jr. likes it or, or someone's interest is like, you know what? If we get Robert Downey Jr. to do weird Robert Downey Jr. things and it works, then we can get, you know, we can get the green yes. light from HBO. We've got a project and he's got his own production company. And maybe that's a thing. And that's truer in, in many creative in pro- industries than we'd like to see is like someone with juice got involved. And it doesn't really matter that the book or underlying property is that great. It's that someone with juice wanted to get it done. And a lot of things happen that way. I'm just not sure what I want is Robert Downey Jr. saying that about the sympathizer and saying, and by the way, I'm going to be method acting five different characters through this because that can be very tough stuff. It could go but all kinds of ways. You're not wrong. If if it wasn't HBO, I'd be very concerned. But totally. since it is, I will watch it. If it's at Netflix, sure. I'm very worried. Extremely concerned. I actually know I'm not concerned if it's Apple because Same. they made Pachinko. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of book that, you know, there's no star vehicle. They didn't cast a star or try to or try to cast Robbie Jenner Jr. as four people, which I very would have been a problem in that show for sure. Um, but that's a literary adaptation that played it pretty straight without a gimmick of some kind. Yeah. Except the gimmick being let's spend $150 million <laughs> on recreating South Korean fishing villages in 1888. Um which is the kind of flex I'm looking for from peak yes. content. From yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the exact comp that I had in mind, that it was a huge production of a gorgeous literary work that was mostly cast with names that are not well-known, at least in the U.S., that broke out some wonderful actors. And it looks like the casting of The Sympathizer has the potential to do that same thing with a like side of Robert Downey Jr., doing some of this antagonist stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's been long enough since I read The Sympathizer that I couldn't quite remember like what those characters might be and how it might make sense to have the same person play them and do different things with it. So that'll be a fun... I, I think I'm going to put this on the list of possible book nerd movie hours for us for the year as the adaptation yeah. comes out and we start to get a sense of what it's going to look like. But it could make a lot of sense for him to do that it's also very true that it could go sideways. I, I, I'm, I'm really counting on HBO to have done it with, like, to have made this with a lot of respect and fidelity to the source material and to the communities that the book represents. You found a very cool thing. That's our next link. I'll put a link in the show notes. Basically looking at what books from the 90s have made it into the canon and the canon being here is codified in syllabi, college syllabi, which I think for lack of something else outside of Harold Bloom writing one time the West, a book mm-hmm. called The Western Canon, which is way more important to me than I care to admit, but that's a whole different podcast, maybe podcast series, frankly. Um, this is pretty good because the things, the stewards of, and literary canon is not just like what PhDs study. This is what people read when they're in English class. And I think... That's a pretty good definition of the canon, frankly, in, in today's yes. day and age. Do you, would you agree with this approach in general? I do. I do. I think that those of us who you know, think about books, either as serious readers or professionals, think about the canon as what gets studied and what gets passed down, like what's identified culturally as significant and meaningful, something you should be familiar with if you're an, yeah. a literature person, and then what gets passed down from one generation of teachers to the next generation of readers and sort of cycling through. I didn't know this resource existed, um, but the, the folks who pulled this together pulled it together from a tool called Open syllabus, which archives university-level syllabi, and they went through, I'm sure with some kind of software, 1.9 million entries from English literature classes since 2010. So the, the Wait, syllabi. I, so none of my so none of my syllabuses from my teaching days would be on this, though. Obvi- we'll talk about this. A lot of the books. <laughs> yeah. So these are classes that were taught in the last twelve years, and looking at books from the nineties. So really, books that were about twenty years old. I guess really between. Mm-hmm. 
20 and 30 years old at the time that they were taught. I was really kind of pleasantly surprised by the top 10. Would you like to hear them? Yeah, th- I'll, I'll just say meta points. We can throw this, the whole thing. So this is tools. Again, link in the show notes, <laughs> bookride.com slash listen. 80s, 90s, and 2000s titles. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a couple times. And I've been toying with it again of doing a um, greatest American novels of the last century. But my caveat there is it has to be at least 20 years old. I need 20 years to decide if something goes on this for myself. And I, this is a completely idiosyncratic thing, though it's just looking here, it lines up pretty well. So this mm-hmm. 2000s gets you, 20 years gets you, it does get you in 2000 now. That is striking for me to say. Um, the last <laughs> time I did this brought me up to like 1998 or something. Um, I don't think I've got any surprises except one in the two th- in the 80s, which is a book I don't know. Mm. Other than that, this looks like, paperback favorites slash high school senior English to me. Yeah. It looks like it. It looks like it. It's fascinating. I just went through the 90s one. And number one is The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. That's a house favorite here. You love Love to see it. Love to see it. Appeared on 2050 syllabi. Good for them. Uh, Mm -hmm. Number two is Woman Hollering Creek by Sandra Cisneros. Really excited to see there on 891 syllabi. So also that gap between number one and number two is real big. <laughs> like Really big. And this happens with all art, but war stories tend to yes. swing a bigger stick just because. I don't know if that's right or wrong. Yeah. It's just true. It's just true. And The Things They Carried was a bestseller in its time. It reads like a memoir. O'Brien does that thing about the happening truth and the story truth and yeah. where's the it's just a wonderful read. I'm delighted. There's I'm just delighted to see that. Delighted to see Sandra Cisneros be there at number two. Number three is The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. That's on 801 syllabi. It's really clustered pretty close here. Number four, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. 788 syllabi. I, I guess I'm interested that Harry Potter makes it onto that many college syllabi. I would love to know. There's a what lot the... more fantasy and mm. science fiction courses than there used to be. And not for nothing, their entire course is dedicated to the Harry Potter stuff now. Like, I wonder and how like many of these are just Harry literature. Potter courses. Yeah, that's children's, true. Exactly, that's true. Exactly. Yeah, something like this was not on the syllabi. I don't think for any of the English courses that I took or could have taken <laughs> in college. Harry Potter mm-hmm. was just coming up, but we didn't, like, nobody was talking really about fantasy and sci-fi 20 years ago, um, more than that now. And I was interested to see it on the list. It's the first book, so that makes sense. You're going to start with the first one in the series. If you took a Harry Potter course or you've got a syllabus from one, I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> Number five, Another House Fave, Interpreter of Maladies by Jhumpa Lahiri, 773 syllabi. Getting into Now we're getting into like literary stuff. Number six yeah. is Disgrace by J.M. Coetzee, 593. I was surprised to see that. Of all the Coetzee, Me why? Too. I mean, again, it has my least favorite trope in it of um, professors doing bad stuff to their <laughs> students. But mm-hmm. I don't know. The barbarians waiting for the... Hey, we don't have to do this. Go for it. I was surprised that I was surprised to see that one and that it was so high. Uh, Number seven is The Giver by Lois Lowry on 575 syllabi. I could imagine that in a conversation about either dystopian literature or children's literature, maybe both. Um, Interesting to see that like continue to dominate that. Um, Angels in America by Tony Kushner, number eight on 508 syllabi. I read Angels in America in college. I don't know who else did, but they're still doing it. So Mm -hmm. glad to see it there. Um, The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler was number nine on 505 syllabi. Number 10 is The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven by Sherman Alexie on 405 syllabi. And I, you know, we could keep going. You could spend all day diving into this. And I'm honestly surprised that you, Jeff O'Neill, did not get completely lost (laughs) in it for hours thinking about well, it. Well, but... part of it is not that interesting. I mean, it's interesting, but it's not that surprising. Like, I didn't furrow mm-hmm. my brow and go, huh, for a lot of these. Yeah, that's true. Um, it feels kind of right because it's regression to the mean of syllabi. And guess what? I taught for a long time and I do this right. for a living. And 
it, it kind of sounds right. I think there's it's over-indexed on the whole on short books and short stories for reasons that I think are obvious. Those are easier to teach. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder how many of the things they carried are not the whole book of the things they carried, but are the short story the things they carried, and the algorithm mm-hmm. doesn't know to distinguish this name of the short story uh, from oh, the title of the book. Same with, same with Woman Hollering Creek or Interpretive yeah. Maladies, right? Um, did they read the whole book or just a short story? It doesn't matter necessarily. I guess another way to think about this, which if you think about the number of pages re- of required reading per author, that's maybe mm. a slightly different list. Because then you're looking at the 80s that's books. True. And the, the the farther you go back, the fewer short stories you tend to have, though there's Cathedral. But like you've got Beloved as being number one is from the 80s, which makes a lot of mm-hmm. sense. But that's a categorically different reading experience than The Giver. Or something else like that. It's just it's just way heavier to do. So just listing titles has a weighting. You can weight this a couple of different ways. As, as, as yeah. I guess is what I'm saying here. But these yeah, are all it, bangers, man. One coming up yeah. for us: Don DeLillo's and, White Noise, 1984, from the 80s. List, uh-huh. Number eight. Uh, I'm there. looking forward to our see. own conversation about that. The the top note here that I think is really encouraging is that of these top ten books that were published in the 90s that have been on syllabi in the last 12 years, half are by people of color and six of the 10 were by women. And so that's a real shift in a documentable data-driven way away from the dead white guys dominating English syllabi, which is certainly what I came up with in high school in the late 90s and was starting to shift in the early Mm -hmm. 2000s. Um, But this is really, really meaningful. I would love to like if I still had them, dig out my syllabi from, I was in college from 2001 to 2005 and compare the diversity of those lists to the diversity of this list. The one book that I didn't know at all is called Nervous Conditions um, by Titi uh, Dangarembenga. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I couldn't find the pronunciation. Put it in the show. No- well, you can find it here, which is a novel by a Zimbabwean woman, uh, which was won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize in 89 and listed in the BBC's Top 100 Books That Changed the World, same biographical novel in post-colonial Rhodesia during the 60s. Not one I heard of. I didn't get it no, in college. I hadn't heard, I hadn't of, heard of this one. So there, that's the one discovery to me. So that's cool um, as well to see. The most recent book, I lost my link, was American Born Chinese by Jen Wen Lang. Mm. Um, which is not a surprise. Graphic novels appear, uh, Persepolis and American-born yeah. Chinese. So that's that's also interesting to see kids' books. I don't think if we'd done this 20 years ago, there'd be that many kids' books on these lists because like, that yeah, would bump the 80s into the 60s, right? If you Watchmen, I think, is way. the only graphic novel in the oh. 80s list. Yeah. yeah. But I don't even know if that would have been taught 10 years ago. Like as graphic mm. no- that existed, mm-hmm. right? That's the first mover, yes. so to yeah. speak in literary seriousness around graphic novels. Is that true? I'm saying this is, I'm wondering about this. We'll, we'll, we'll call it true. If anyone wants to correct me, uh, feel free, podcast at bookwrite.com. Um, notable to see there. Sherman Alexie holding out a couple spots. I wonder how mm-hmm. much of that, if we had moved the slider up to 2018, <laughs> you know, how many of these are from 2020 to 2018? Do people care? Do Are these short stories or short books important enough? I can certainly see in certain situations that you don't have a lot of alternatives for, you know, literary young adult books. That's kind of where Sherman Alexie really broke through. Um, I, yeah, that's, even beyond do people care, a, a really big open question know? for me is do people know? Because like do The Brief Wondrous, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow is one of these yeah. as well by Juno Diaz from the 2000s. You know, I can, that's a rich text <laughs> that you could do a lot of interesting stuff with in a college yeah. class. Like do people know is I think a more generous question. And it's really the place I've landed about this, like outside of book nerddom that really follows stories about, you know, who has been misbehaving and in what ways and how, and are there going to be consequences for it, especially as the me too movement crested. Mm -hmm. I don't know how far outside of deep book nerd, the deep book nerddom. Why did I pick a phrase that's hard to say? (laughs) Um, I don't know. Those, uh, 
those stories have made it. And it would be, I'd be fascinated to know the answer to that. Are teachers talking about the controversy? Like, I think there's a lot of value in that as well. Here is why I'm choosing to talk about this and situate it inside its context and teach it anyway. Or do they just not know or are they ignoring it? Um, I don't know. I don't think we'll know, but I have questions as always. (laughs) Yeah. So go check that out. Really good and interesting list. You could pick, you could sort of put these on a dartboard and throw and hit and read something really cool. You could. You could. Uh, Let's do our second sponsor and then we'll get into some other stuff. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Anita de Monte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. So this is one of my most anticipated books of the year. It follows two women of color who are in the art world but who also kind of sit outside of it because of a lack of privilege. So the story is told from both of their perspectives and it moves back and forth through time. So in 1985, Anita DeMonte is a rising star in the art world and she's found dead in New York City, right? And then in 1998, Raquel, a third-year art history student, becomes involved with an older, more privileged art student and finds herself rising up the social ranks as a result. But then she also stumbles upon Anita's story, and she sees parallels between Anita's story and her own. So Anita DeMonte Laughs Last is a propulsive, witty examination of power. Make sure to pick it up. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing. So this book I'm about to tell you about might be the next book talk, Darling. It's a high octane fantasy adventure filled with risk, romance, action, and sweet vengeance. In it, there are five liars who have five agendas, but only one target. So in Five Broken Blades from author Mae Corlin, the five most dangerous liars in the land have been mysteriously summoned to work together for a single objective, which is to kill the cruel God King June. Each has tasted bitterness from the hired hitman seeking atonement to the lovely assassin dreaming of freedom to even the prince exiled for his own crimes. This is a high stakes game of treachery where the vengeance is sweet. The secrets are delicious and each page deepens a journey that will keep you guessing until the very end. This also has themes of friendship, found family. You got a little bit of everything in this. Make sure to check out Five Broken Blades. And thanks again to Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing for sponsoring this episode. I thought I may have one in the chamber of a joke or some angle on the competition (laughs) to name the Booker Prize trophy. But I'm like a deer in headlights with this. So the Booker Prize organization... Um, would like is holding an open competition to name the Booker Prize trophy, which is shockingly, kind of befuddlingly, a picture of what looks like a handmaiden holding up a giant bull, <laughs> uh, which apparently was like a, a statue a statue by the artist Jan Pinkowski um, in 1969. That was the statue. It's not been in use, really. Like, I think if you won this in 1999, you weren't getting one of these, but they brought it back as the Booker has tried to tried to figure out how to become more relevant, more recognizable, both probably for its own sake, but also to do the thing that it does of award and recognize books and tell people about remarkable books from the English Commonwealth and then also, of course, around the world. Are we sure we should go with this statue is my first question. I know. Are we sure the competition shouldn't be beat this statue first? Because I've got nothing here. I've got no. It's not weird. It's like it's a pretty. It's not weird enough to be funny, but it's also not like iconic enough to be. Wow. I want to really name. Why does this? What does this have to do with books? This woman is holding a large bowl. I do not get. Are you supposed to drink out of this? This is strange, Rebecca. Drink from the bowl of knowledge, Jeff. Yeah, I read this and I just really landed in the place of why? Um, 
It notes at the very bottom of this piece that the trophy for the Academy Awards that, you know, that we refer to as the Oscars um, got that nickname because the executive director of the Motion Picture Academy at the time said that the statuette reminded her of her uncle Oscar, which like, okay, (laughs) does the trophy like does the trophy if we have to have this trophy, which it seems that the Booker Prize is committed to for reasons that are unknown to us. Why does she need a name? And how is there any way that this doesn't end in something punny? Like Bookie McBookface. (laughs) Yeah, you now I don't is it open for voting? I didn't actually get that far. I was so ensorcelled by the handmaiden holding the bull. I don't know how the uh was gonna determine. Um, I don't you think we're going to fill gonna out vote. a form oh, to enter. The judges select votes. their six. It, you're right. It's yeah. a public. It's going to be Bookie I'm, McBoatface. It is. It is going to be Bookie McBoatface. Do I'm like that's that's fun in other situations. Like Richmond had a competition to name our new street sweepers last year, yeah. and there was a bracket vote, and those were all hilarious and a really good time. But like, no one needs the street sweepers to be taken seriously, and I no. think the intention here no. is to. add some gravitas and cultural legitimacy of some kind then the booker prize has plenty of both of those things like you don't need extra by naming the trophy i don't see any way that this goes in the direction that the booker people hope or think it will go (laughs) i don't even have a good idea for this like um so i tried and i also failed (laughs) my only thought was Forget the statue and trying to do some of the statue. I mean, okay, it can be that statue. But, like, who would you name it after? Just because it looks like Oscar, I'm not going that. But Hillary Mantel recently died. She won the mm-hmm. Booker Prize twice. Could this that be the mantle? Also. The mm-hmm. mantelpiece? That's not That's not right. We can't do that. Um, <laughs> no. But I had, it had occurred, the only thing that I had landed on also was some homage to Hillary Mantel. But do you want to yeah. name this handmaiden-looking woman in this statue after Hillary Mantel, know. is that really a tribute to Hillary Mantel? I don't think so. Here's a thought. So this this woman is holding up a giant bowl. We could call this the Super Bowl. It's a big. It's a Super Bowl. You've won the Super Bowl. <laughs> Congratulations. I, that was, SEO would be amazing for that. <laughs> who won the Super Bowl Super last Bowl year? Super Bowl winner Hillary. J.M. Mantel. Coetze. Who won the Super Bowl in 1984? J.M. Coetze for disgrace. Actually, that was 99. I mean, they um, got. They be better hilarious. hire a really good SEO expert if they want to win that game <laughs> against yeah, the NFL. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's it's pretty weird. I mean, Salman Rushdie won the Booker of Bookers, um, which was very Inception level. But like of the people who've won of the books for for Midnight Children, the books who've won the Booker Prize, that was open to a public vote. I think which of these is the best, and it was Midnight mm-hmm. Children. He's right. also been nominated seven times. He's in the news. I think has a lot of sympathy right now. A complicated figure. I don't know that you can name the statue of a woman after Salman Rushdie for a lot of reasons. Uh, that's not going to work out really great. I think we need – I don't know that I would have been anchored on using this particular thing. Um, yeah. It, I, I she doesn't know. need a name. Like She can be mysterious if we have to yeah. have her. I think that would be advisable. You don't think calling it the French flaps is a good idea? The flaps? The flowers. No, 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 no. Lady Deckle. <laughs> Lady Deckle. Yeah, we could call her uh, the remaindered. The remainder prize. That's not what you want either. <laughs> no, because you know a lot of these prizes. They they get they win and then they publish a bunch more of them, and then uh, a bunch yeah. of Peter Carey books get remaindered and are still available. Um, not great. My first James Coetzee book actually I read. I picked up remaindered mm-hmm. at the Strand. Probably was disgraced okay. in about two thousand when I moved to New York. Uh, yeah, very, <laughs> very strange stuff. <laughs> yeah. If you've got an idea, you, yeah. I, I don't even have something funny. Like what I just, there's nothing funny. There's nothing witty. I've got no notes here. Um, yeah, not even a bad pun All the book things attempt. are taken by blogs from 2011. So we can't do any of those. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, it's, this is mysterious. Did The Handmaid's Tale win? You, maybe you call it The Handmaiden. Who wants to win that prize? No, I, no. Well, I don't know. You can't. You can't call it Wonder Woman. I, you can't do it. We I don't know what to tell you. The handmaid at least is referencing could, something. Yeah, she could be named Offred. Oh, there you go, Offred. The Offred that that could actually win. I don't know if you want. Yeah, to do that. I think that's the okay. name of a prize for like dystopian feminist literature, perhaps. <sighs> 
Maybe. Yeah. But handmaidens don't have a good situation. I don't know that you want to name anything after no, them. No, you don't. They, they it's really not an don't. admirable position to be in. Okay. Well, as clearly we <laughs> are in uh, branding and marketing for a reason, um, get at us, McDonald's, when you need to name your new sandwich, because this is all gold that we're producing here. <laughs> I do uh, think we could have done better than oh, the McGriddle. <laughs> no. McGriddle. It's pretty good. What about the McBooker? Could this be the McBooker? Do you think that'd be okay? <laughs> I mean, big corporate sponsorship like that would certainly keep an organization alive for a while. Yeah. Hashtag bowl? What if it was just hashtag, you won the hashtag bowl? <laughs> the book bowl. The bowl. Just call it the bowl. No, mm-hmm. this is all terrible. Uh, well, it is I, bad. I look it's forward to the, the wisdom of crowds crushing whatever we can't imagine. <laughs> Right here. Um, speaking of crushing what you can't imagine, that's a segue into my front list foyer diatribe seminar uh, that I need to run here. But I'm gonna I'm gonna get out of the way first because once I get going, I'm not gonna be able to stop for a few minutes on, on mine, Rebecca. So All why right. don't you take the first crack? Oh, okay. Foyer. Let's see. I got a couple. Um, I read, which is out this week, really good actually, by Monica Heisey. It's a kind I had, of. I looked at this when I was at Powell's yesterday. Tell me about it. It's fun. It's kind of a quarter life, late quarter life crisis novel about a young woman who's going through a divorce. She's 28. Mm. She and her husband got married, you know, kind of young because she's going through a divorce already at 28. And she spends the first year after the divorce thinking, like, I'm doing really good, actually, and then sort of falls apart. And it is a novel about her falling apart. It is a very, it's like, it's a fun and funny tone. She's very self-aware, but it re- it's kind of a cousin, I think, to post-traumatic. Not because they're anything like each other to read, but because the characters are both really open with the reader about all the things that they're thinking and feeling that are the kinds of things you think and feel that you don't normally say out loud to people. <laughs> So she's a disaster. She becomes pretty aware that she's a disaster. At one point, her friends like have an intervention because she's being such a jerk. Horrible things happen. Funny things happen. It would make like a, kind of a funny movie to watch, I think. I really enjoyed it. It was a solid debut. It did give me a moment of like, why is everyone in literary fiction 28 years old? Um, but that's a question for a different day. And it's not that's true. who writes debut novels, and there's just more I debut know. novels in refiction. I mean, and that's just how I it did, is. I did spend some time like really thinking about it, and I think like that's a good age for sort of maximal neuroticism of like yeah. figuring out your life and still being in kind of an in between place, and then going through something that's as destabilizing as a divorce. It makes for interesting fiction. Like happy, mm. settled people don't make for good fiction. Uh, so no. I thought it was a really good time. I would recommend it. I'm reading ahead a little bit. And listeners, this is where you can tell us, do you want me to not talk about things until their release week? Because we could save them. But I'm fresh off of BFF by Christy Tate, which was one of my anticipated titles for the year. She wrote Group a couple of years ago about her experience in like pretty hardcore, unconventional group therapy. And this is about friendship. Um, She kind of figures out after she's gotten married and she thinks that like she's done her work basically like I've done my work I figured out relationships I have a partner I have kids but friendship is has always been a struggle for her and she has this friend from one of her recovery groups an older woman that she knows who kind of identifies hey we've both actually struggled with this what if we became Mm. kind of functionally they become each other's friendship sponsors like let's talk to each other about the stuff that's going on in our friendships and the patterns that come up for us and the places that we want to improve and let's support each other on that and they work through it Um, at the time that Tate is writing it that friend has died and so that friend's illness and death are also on the page it is it's that part it's really beautiful and really touching and gave me just it's just there's a lot to think about it's beautiful perspective I'm kind of fascinated by recovery memoirs and we all know that I'm fascinated by people's therapy stories Um, and she does both Um, it wasn't like as juicy as group is but it is equally like vulnerable and open and funny and I just think there's so much for anybody to see themselves in and relate to it was that was really good and fun Um, and I'm catching up on 
I think it's still technically front list because it hasn't come out in paperback yet, but a Mm. 2022 book I just didn't get to in time uh, called Mm. How Far the Light Reaches by Sabrina Embler. And it is, man, if you're a nature writing person, this is on the list. It feels kin to World of Wonders for me. Um, Each piece, each essay is about a different sea creature but also about something from Imbler's life that ties into something about that sea creature. And they weigh on um, their sexual and gender identity experiences being a mixed race person. Imbler is half white, half Chinese. And so like, there's an essay about hybrids and about what hybrids look like in hybrid species and what it feels like to be a person who might be thought of as a hybrid, both racially and as someone who's non-binary. Um, just really gorgeous, thoughtful does all the things I want essays to do. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I really liked the way that Embler blended the nature writing with the personal reflection. Like if you liked World of Wonders and each piece in that, which is like one or two pages long, each piece in this is, I don't know, 10 or 15 pages long. It's a nice, but it's a nice follow on. It's a great vibe. Um, I'm I'm not quite finished because I'm just sort of slowly dipping in and out <laughs> of it. I want this book to last a while. And I feel like I am going to be on board for whatever Sabrina Embler does next. So those are those are mine, and I have now like cleared my umbrellas out of the front list for Yeah, me. I'm up against a time thing. I got five <laughs> minutes because I got to be on another call here in a minute, which is both good and bad, and you're going to hear All why right. in a second. So I prepped you for this. So I read back-to-back. Um, I've got other stuff to talk about, but that has to take a backseat to the duology of The Passenger and Stella Maris by... Uh, Cormac McCarthy, ever heard of him? Um, mm-hmm. Rebecca, I don't know what to say. I was pretty blown away. And that pretty is just me being nervous about saying that I was blown away. Okay, so you were blown away. I don't know what these things are. I mean, they're, they're books. Um, O'Neill's Razor was extremely happy. It's a duology mm-hmm. that they come mm-hmm. out three weeks apart. Let's go. Yeah. More of this, please. That's great. On the other hand, what is this thing? And so if this is the last thing McCarthy ever does, for someone in their mid-80s with the kind of career he has, I was trying to think of an analog of who's done something this interesting and ambitious and strange and daring this late in their literary career. Like, Mm. we're 50 years into the Cormac McCarthy experience, and this is – I don't know what this is. So – okay. It's two books. The first book is called The Passenger. The blurb you're hearing, and the one I got is there's a passing, there's a plane that goes down in a lake off the coast of Louisiana, and mm-hmm. there's a salvage diver that goes down there, and it turns out that there's a passenger mes- missing. I was told that I, I heard and what I saw, told by the marketing, whatever, that this was going to be kind of like no country for old men, someone who's kind of a workaday person, a competent person. And every man capable protagonist gets caught up in something else. And McCarthy does McCarthy things with that, right? So mm-hmm. like elevated thriller slash existential westerny kind of thing. I was like, okay, that's cool. Yeah. It's not exactly that. And by not exactly okay. that, I mean it's not all that. And I'm going to start <laughs> spoiling it here. So if you don't want to know, I have to stop. You, thank you so much. Bookriot.com. There's a music at the end. You're done. You can go. But – so the the main character, his name is Bobby, does that. That's like the first 30 pages. No, it's not the first 30 pages, but the first 30 pages of plot. And we never hear what happens about the passenger. The only thing that comes oh. out of that, that he's now sort of like harassed by the feds or the government or guys with suits with badges that can do stuff to him. Okay. We never – McCarthy's completely uninterested in that mystery, <laughs> out, except that it just means this guy is like – he's got the, 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 the feds on his tail. Okay. Essentially. Okay. Fine. But the first like 15 pages of the book are all in italics. So if you've been reading enough, you know, okay, this is not the real story. This is a dream, a memory, something else like this. And it's, and I don't, it's going to sound like I'm having a stroke. I'm so sorry. It's this character called the kid who is a dwarf who has thalidomide arms talking about nonsense to a girl in a bed. And you can't make any sense out. It goes on for like 15 pages. And interleaved with the whole book are these scenes from this 
William S. Burroughs-like stream of consciousness, surrealist, fever dream, <laughs> weirdness. And I was like, I got 50 pages into this. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to finish this, Rebecca. I was like, I, oh, wow. I, this is where I said to you, I consider myself an educated man. I don't know what's happening. I have mm-hmm, no idea mm-hmm. how this relates to this, this welder, this underwater welder who, you know, got involved with something. And I don't know where to go from it. I don't know what to say because then it becomes about him trying to figure out what to do with his life, his relationships. His dad worked on the Los Alamos project with Robert J. Oppenheimer. There's a whole bunch of stuff Mm. about topological math and quantum physics uh, and welding and hyperbaric chambers into the bottom (laughs) of the ocean. And it is wild but completely fascinating. And you come in in the course of the passenger to find out that he has a sister who's a genius, a math genius, who has committed suicide. Okay. And that they were probably in love with each other. It's a oh. tough break. Uh, which, and it doesn't get any, it gets, that's as weird as it gets. It doesn't get any weirder than that, except that it totally does another direction. So the <laughs> second book called Stella Maris is the name of the psychiatric institution at which her, the character Alice is self um, admitted. And that's, okay. that whole book is a dialogue with her therapist over a course of many sessions saying, So what this she is before is she dies by not. suicide. It's like a flashback? Yes, except in the okay. second book, and I may just, this might have been a reading comprehension thing. In her story, her brother Bobby died while a Formula Two driver in Europe, which doesn't happen oh. as far as I can tell. Because Bobby in the first book <laughs> talked about his time driving Formula Two, and he's alive and well, not being chased, being chased by the feds for reasons that aren't cared about. And she goes into these long discursive monologues about quantum mechanics and quantum physics and nature of math and the universe and everything. And I did remember in the middle of it, and I don't know if this helped me or hurt me, that Cormac McCarthy had like co-founded a journal about quantum mathematics with someone. Like he was very interested in this. I don't know if this Uh rings any bells. And it's about the nature of the universe and math. And I don't – I need to (laughs) – teach. I need to take like a 12-week seminar on this. I would sign up tomorrow. I don't know if it's good, but it did. I just want to talk about it all the time. That's all I want to do now. Mm -hmm. Or for like the three days after, I was like, I wish I had somewhere to go with this because I don't know what to make of it. And some other people, I don't know any ones that read both of them. I know some people have Mm -hmm. read one. I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's a bunch of wanking. I don't know what it is, but I'm all up in arms about it. It's wild. And I can't recommend it to a soul. I can't even recommend it to you. I I don't know what to do. It's I know I've been listening. <laughs> I've been listening here, waiting for something to come out that makes me be like, you know what? I'm going to read this just to figure it out with you, and I just don't think I can. I don't know. That you I don't can. think I can get I don't there. Know, I don't know how. Who's buying this? I don't. The people yeah. who signed up for No Country for Old Men or the Road, like me, were like, nope. I, I would yeah, have to say it's like, one of the highest DNF quotients I've ever heard of. Oh, Luckily, I, I I'm kind of stubborn. And I've got some grad school in me, so I'm like, okay, we're going to get along, and I'm sure this will make more sense. And it did. It's and it and it does hold together thematically in a weird way. But he is so uninterested in the novel, as we've come to understand it, that he's like, here's two. They're kind of both about the same thing, but totally not. Um, It's not nihilistic because I think if I had to say what it's actually about and what McCarthy's maybe whole project is, it's not nihilism. It's not that the universe doesn't mean anything. It's that this, the underlying suspicion, I think, of the sibling characters here and McCarthy himself possibly is that if you could understand what the universe was really all about, it would be so terrifying that you might mm. as well – you'd want to kill yourself. And so uh. this whole thing about being in love with your sister, that's, that's a truth that is so terrifying and unimaginable mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that you don't want to explore it. This, this, this plane crash where this person is mysteriously gone, you know that's not a good story. You know no. that getting to the end of that is only going to be terrifying. You know that working at Los Alamos is only going to end in the bomb. You know if you run, if you drive Formula 2 long enough, you're going to die. You know if, well, this is the theory. If you get to the end of quantum mechanics, it's this realm of strangeness that you can't understand. If you really right. understood schizophrenia, you maybe go mad. And so that's the only thing I can come up with. It is something about this is like, it's not that the core, it's all beautiful and MC squared. And the, at the core of existence, it is... <laughs> a terrifying, mind-blowing, unintelligibly, I don't know, gargantuan and horrible and awesome truth. And he's trying so, to find some way of exploring how, <laughs> how to even communicate that. And my what mind a, was sort of blown. 
yeah, not a sunny view of humanity coming out of Cormac McCarthy. No, <laughs> but I guess humans are surprising. fine. It's the universe that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, interesting. That does so sound like a very interesting, tangly reading experience. And I have like feeling bad for you that you don't have a buddy to talk about this with and also also well, this feeling goes like the whole thing about reading writ large right like we know <laughs> yeah, this now there yeah. is no mainstream reading and so if you read something like this and i i guess i have some sympathy for the algorithm that people the algorithm tiktok algorithm provides people some community right one reason mm, someone wants to mm-hmm. see a court of thorn and roses memes is because that's the only way you can like feel like a part of a, a reading conversation because there's nowhere else to go right <laughs> Yeah, and usually one of us can recruit the other one into a project like this so that there's somebody to talk about the book with. But you're not even trying to recruit me into it. No, please don't. I I mean, there's a chance you will like it, but I cannot be held responsible for your reading experience. Listeners, did, did any of you go on this journey? Jeff needs a friend. I saw one Patreon, I can't, I can't remember someone's name, said the passenger and I needed to talk about it. And maybe that's the sign of... A work of art is that people have this reaction. I'm mm-hmm. sure people hate it, but it's not like I don't know. It, it, well, it's I think else. it's and I, I'm not joking. Goes, I would take a six week course. I think it goes to the heart of like what the project of making art is. Like, because I was going to say earlier, yeah. it sounds like this is either a masterpiece or a disaster. And like, does the editor even know? Does McCarthy himself know? You as a reader. Don't know. Will we ever come to some sort of answer about it? But that is kind of secondary. The answer to that question is secondary yes. to does it bring, do you respond to it? Does it make you think something yeah. or feel something or have questions? And I think yeah, that's it can't be a disaster. It's a mess, but it's not do. a disaster, yeah. at least for me, because I'm having this reaction to it. This is not right. me like, like saying, it, what the it, hell it is this in a bad like way? It's, it's like, what right. the hell is this in an interesting way? Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's embarrassing for McCarthy, no. you know, or, or any of those things. Like this is just no. Either he's he's operating on some plane that we are not going to understand, and that's either like a genius plane or a troubling one, or maybe both. <laughs> but if maybe, there's enough to both. chew on, yeah. yeah, if there's enough to chew on, you don't have to come out agreeing with his take on whatever. If you can even conclude what his take is, but right. you had a response, and that is a successful yes. piece of art. And it, it was an unexperienced thing like anything before. I'm so glad it didn't. It wasn't just no country for old scuba divers, which I would have enjoyed. But knowing <laughs> what this is now, I would take this over that. So that tells you something. Well, there's our show title for the week. <laughs> All right, I got to run. Bookriot.com slash right. listen. Podcast. Take Book some Riot. deep breaths. <laughs> got to take some deep breaths and go talk about business spreadsheets. How am I going to talk about spreadsheets now? I got to think about the nature of the universe and quarks and muons and upside and downside. I mean, spreadsheets are dark, man. I think it supports McCarthy's theory. <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks as always, Rebecca. Rebecca.